with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Good afternoon and welcome to the Afternoon Buzz. Hello, Dan Torres. Hello, Buzz. How goes it? It goes well. I'm really excited. In the studio today is somebody I read in, believe it or not. I don't much, believe it. Much as I read Dusty Christensen, I haven't met Dusty Christensen. First time in person. It's unbelievable. It's like uh, ships crossing in a night. And here we are in the studio together. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, well, um, as a staff writer for the Hampshire Gazette, I read you all the time. I think you do one heck of a job. Um, but I have to ask, it's local. You know, I mean, it's not a huge stage. Why do you do it? What do you like about it? What don't you like about it? Wow, great question. Uh, well, it, to me, it feels like a huge stage, right? I mean, whenever you're a local reporter, you're reporting on things that people really care about in their own backyard. You know, at, I think maybe if you're reporting on, on national news, you might get on CNN. People might recognize your face. But, you know, when they recognize that you've broken the story about whatever important thing happened in their city council or in their neighborhood or with their police department... I, it just, it feels like the biggest stage in the world. You know, mm -hmm. you get to actually make a difference in the community that you live in. You get to uh, hold powerful people accountable in your own neighborhood and backyard. Uh, so I think that's what keeps all of us going, right? Is to be able to tell those stories in our own communities that are important to to everyone else. Uh, it's certainly not the pay that keeps us going. <laughs> it isn't the pay that keeps people going. Let me, let me ask you about one particular case that, that you were just writing about. I think of the looking at an article from the 21st, and I'm looking for one from the 26th about this um, extraordinary policy. I remember when the, when the first statute passed, and it was in the 90s, I can't tell you the year, but about civil asset forfeiture. So let's talk about, first of all, how did it come to your attention? And then what did you find out in investigating that story? Yeah, so it came to my attention. I think it's kind of become a national conversation uh, for folks who don't know. Maybe listening civil asset forfeiture is the process by which law enforcement, police, uh, district attorneys can seize and often keep uh, your property, money, cars, etc., if you are uh, suspected of some sort of illegal activity, uh, largely uh, related to, to drugs, but other things as well. Um, if it's suspected, if it's alleged, yes, that there is probable cause. That's a very low standard. Oh yeah, to believe that that asset was involved or was derived from an unlawful activity, right? So, that's right. So someday somebody will explain why those Patriots season tickets were taken from my client in the nineties in a case called Commonwealth versus Patriot season tickets. <laughs> <laughs> they show up on dockets as the Commonwealth versus whatever property it is. They're they're super funny to find in the court system. You know, Commonwealth versus uh, bologna sandwich or whatever. <laughs> and uh, but you know, it's obviously a really a really important issue. Yeah, and for someone you, who's been forfeited. Yeah, yeah, and as and here as you note, uh, here in Massachusetts, we uh, have the lowest standard of proof to support a seizure of somebody's property in the entire country. Probable cause is the uh, standard of proof, which, as you say, is the lowest possible. Um, and so, you know, this is a story that has, uh, you know, made civil asset forfeiture has made national headlines in, in recent years because of some of the more egregious cases of people innocent of any crime having their car taken and finding themselves in this Kafka-esque bureaucracy trying to get their property back. Um, here, it's it's an interesting story. I, I just want to flesh that out. If sure, listeners sure. haven't read your your reporting, which is great on this issue, so I can have twenty five thousand dollars taken from me, 
and I'm not I'm not charged with a crime, and I'm trying to get it back, and the onus is on me to prove that I'm innocent of something that I haven't been charged for having done. That's right. That's right. And actually, that is the exact case that happened with a woman we reported on in Holyoke, which is what got us interested in this topic to begin with. She sued the city of Holyoke after, I believe it was in 2019, she had $25,000 taken from her by the Holyoke Police Department. She had put up bail money for, I think it was a relative, in, in, a, in a criminal case. He had been arrested. She bailed him out with 25 k While he was out, I think he caught another charge, which meant that his bail was revoked so she could go back to the courthouse and get that money back. That money's just to ensure that he shows up to court dates while he's out of, of jail, right? Uh, she got the money back, and when she turned returned home, she alleged that the Holyoke Police Department was there. They said that the money belonged to the case, whatever that means, and forced her to go to the bank, withdraw the money, and hand it over to them. Uh, and sure enough, it sat in the Holyoke Police Department's coffers for several years before she hired an attorney, sued the city, and immediately this city agreed to judgment, which meant they essentially agreed she was right, and they gave her her money back. Uh, that you sounds can... like a really common thing to have happen, that a city <laughs> He says, oh, you win. We're not even going to contest. Very rare. Very rare. And so obviously it's, you know, essentially them admitting that she was right. Her lawyer described it as an illegal shakedown. Now, now to be clear, you know, uh, often uh, district attorneys will bring drug charges in cases like these. Uh, but a civil asset forfeiture case, as you well know, uh, you know, uh, proceeds on a separate track. And so it can get really confusing for uh, for defendants uh, to be fighting their criminal case as well as fighting for their property to be, to be returned to them potentially uh, in a completely separate track. Right. So, you know, it, uh, it makes sense sometimes that, um, oh, the, uh, the boat that they that they found uh, these, that you know, the ton of uh, cocaine in, uh, somehow related to the the uh, unlawful activity, and therefore they go bring a forfeiture proceeding against that boat because it just there's a more rational connection, and I still don't like it, but at least there there's a rational connection than somebody's bond money. I have a question for both of you. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, how, how does this? How does the police uh, determine? that assets can be seized? Do they do a background on a person, look at them, make a judgment on their appearance? Do they, how do they determine that like, hey, you shouldn't have this money because you have to prove that you've earned it? I mean, how does that go? Well, I, I can tell you that in my experience, and remember that it's been a long time since I've been a regular participant in state court. Um, I've been federal for quite a while. But, um, when I used to be, uh, I can't say exactly where they pulled the theory out of because the FCC would cut off our signal if I said that. But I, it just came out of thin air. And and now sometimes, as I just said, yeah. a boat that they find a ton right. of cocaine in is a more obvious, e rational... rational hypothesis given that the value of the boat far exceeds that person's income like i would understand that but like twenty five thousand dollars i mean it's but they see uh, people's used subarus they right. see you know the briefcase in which people were you know carrying stuff that had phone numbers so as long as crazy as long as the police believe that that was uh well they have to defend it by probable cause but that's not really that difficult a standard to meet Okay, right. that is the lowest you most, said. It, yeah, most states have a preponderance of the evidence, which if you're going to quantify, it's like yeah. 51%. It's more likely than not that that 
That's preponderance. That asset was used in the context of unlawful activity. Is that what you're reporting? That's right. That's right. And uh, there is now an effort afoot in the state legislature and the state Senate in particular. uh, One of our local lawmakers, uh, Senator Adam Hines, is a co-sponsor on this bill that would raise that standard of proof from probable cause to a preponderance of the evidence, as well as as doing a whole bunch of other things. I think the other important point to remember here is that the same police departments that seize this money or these assets and the same district attorneys that... Uh, prosecute those cases, in the end, if that money is deemed forfeited, get to keep that money into their and put it into their own budgets. And so it's, it's incentivizing taking your property. That's what civil rights advocates have been saying for a long time, that there's this incentive there that if you take money and you push to have it forfeited from somebody, you ultimately get to keep it as an agency. Uh, and district attorneys and police chiefs have that money to spend at their discretion. So we recently did an article uh, where we used public records requests to dig into how much money the Holyoke Police Department has just seized over four years, and then how much money has come into the department through forfeiture during those four years. And we found that uh, that a pretty astounding amount of money had gone into their coffers, and most of it was spent on overtime. Now, they say that, you know, that overtime is to handle complex uh, drug investigations or prostitution stings, for example, and that it's a benefit to taxpayers because, you know, that's not using the regular budget in order to uh, to do those investigations. Uh, obviously, there's plenty of people who would right. uh, take it, issue it with uses, that. It uses an individual's money right? Um, rather than the taxpayer's money. I think the taxpayers should be paying for the investigations done on their behalf, right? Sure. And, and that's, you know, some of the, so this bill that a number of lawmakers have put forward to try to reform the civil asset forfeiture system in our state uh, would transfer that money not to DA's offices and police departments, which split it 50-50, uh, but would send it to the state's general fund, right. uh, where presumably it could it could be allocated to district attorney's offices to, to do more investigative work, or it could be allocated elsewhere. Yeah. I mean, this is going to shock you, Dan. Shock me. Hold on to your seat. I'm trying. You'll never see this coming. <laughs> okay. Which is, I remember in the um, uh, the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers, there was a study that they published that showed that in those jurisdictions, the higher the percentage a police department gets to keep of speeding citations and traffic citations, the more frequently they write citations. Like that's a big shock. What right? did never expect. So if they get to keep eighty percent of what you of the three hundred dollars you pay in your citation, then they're likely to stop more people. Who Come knew? On. Who would have guessed that one? Right. I know. And so sure enough, it, when it comes to civil asset forfeiture, this is the issue so many people take is that you know at least in the Holyoke Police Department, we found that uh, I think it was around half of the I want to say. Uh, $310,000 that they spent in civil asset forfeiture money over four years, about half of it went to overtime. In other words, went back into the, the pockets of specific police officers. And the person who benefited by far and away uh, more than anybody else uh, in the Holyoke Police Department was a longtime captain who's now the police chief, David Pratt, uh, who pulled in some pretty substantial money uh, in, in, in forfeiture funds uh, paid to him through overtime. So this is a burning question for me, and um, we have two minutes before we take a break, and I, I just, I love um, to, to think about this question and to see what your answer is, because I'm a local attorney, and it goes something like this. In big city investigative reportage, you might not run into the same people over and over and over again. When you write a critical article about a public official here, in this case, Holyoke Police 
department um, or the DA in Hamden County, uh, uh, are you dampening the likelihood that they're going to be cooperative the next time you want to write a story involving them? Maybe, but, you know, I think, and and I'm sure a lot of folks would agree with me that, uh, you know, there's so many problems with uh, what we would call sort of access journalism, right? Sort of basing your stories on whether or not you're going to get access to that powerful person. Um, if you've been in a newsroom long enough, you know that those powerful people are very rarely bringing you big, important stories anyways, and certainly not stories that reflect poorly on them. And so, you know, I think it's incumbent on us as reporters uh, to... Uh, as the cliche goes, uh, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Mm -hmm. And that includes, you know, powerful people like our local elected DAs or, or lawmakers or, uh, uh, you know, appointed police chiefs uh, and, and, you know, city officials. Uh, you know, and, and if it means that they're not going to be coming to us for stories or maybe ignoring our phone calls, which happens all the time with me, um, you know, that's a price to pay for really, uh, I think, bold journalism. And that's what we should be doing. We can get those stories elsewhere. You know, we can make sources in other places and uh, and ask tough enough questions that eventually they can't ignore them. It does make your job harder, though, when you have to sure. search for answers Yeah, a little bit harder. We're going to take a break. We've been talking to, and we'll continue to talk to Dusty Christensen, the staff writer for the Daily Hampshire Gazette. Um, I know I'm really grateful to uh, him for the work that he does. The reporting that you do, Dusty, it really um, it keeps us informed. Good. We're going to be right back with Dusty right after these messages. Stay with us. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg. 101.5 WHMP. Hey everyone, Gordon Oliver here. I am privileged, along with my co-pilot Tina Marie, to gather and share a community of people, organizations, and experts who are making a difference in improving and positively impacting the financial lives of others. Financial peace of mind is a marathon, not a sprint, so we're cutting through the clutter to help you attain or continue to attain financial freedom. If you like entertaining and informative facts, then you'll love this week's show with writer William Henry of FirstLightFacts.com with little-known facts that are Independence Day approved. This Saturday at 9.30 a.m. here on WHMP. I grew up in a normal home in a normal town. All of a sudden, everything got crazy. I didn't talk to anybody about the way I was feeling. I was scared and I was alone. I started drinking. I just didn't want to deal with what was happening in my life. I knew about AA, but thought I was too young. I found out I was wrong. If you have a problem with your drinking, why don't you give AA a call? Alcoholics Anonymous. It works. Look us up. Online and in-person meetings. For more, call 413-532-2111 or visit westernmassaa.org. My name is Joanne Vanin. I am a CASA worker, court-appointed special advocate for the organization Friends of Children. I first got involved with the CASA program back in 2004. I was still full-time employed at that time as the uh, dean of students at UMass Amherst. The case that inspires me relates to a young man. There were issues of physical abuse. There were issues of drug abuse. Through the advocacy work that I did, this young man was placed with a family in Springfield. It was a rocky start. But the good news is that this foster family stepped up and said that they would adopt him. Almost immediately, I began to see the change in him in terms of his own confidence in himself, which clearly derived from a sense of security. And that also was evidenced in the way he performed in school. 
the really happy ending to this is I got a text message saying to me, look at my report card, and he is on honor Learn more about becoming a CASA advocate by visiting Friends of Children's offices on Route 9 in Hadley or going to friendsofchildreninc.org. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Um, with Dusty Christensen. Uh, Dusty, when you are inspired to uh, do a story, is it that you, you saw an issue and you thought, oh, this seems problematic? Is that somebody complains to you? Is how, how do you get attracted to an issue before you investigate it? That's a great question. I, I do think that that's some of the benefit of being a, a daily news reporter. You know, ultimately at the Gazette, uh, we don't have a dedicated investigative team that spends, you know, five months digging into one story and that story alone. All of us who do investigative work at the Gazette, uh, you know, do it in free moments during the day while we're also reporting on daily stories. Um, you know, for me as an investigative reporter, I, I actually like that a lot. You know, it means that I'm on the beat every day reporting on stories that are uh, meaningful and important to the community. And I think that's where a lot of my story ideas come from. Uh, you know, for example, we were talking before the break about civil asset forfeiture and, you know, that that issue jumped on my radar because of a case we covered in, in court. There's a whole host of issues uh, that uh, that we've been able to dig into with more investigative stories that come from that daily reporting where you scratch the surface and have one story in the newspaper and say like, ooh, I think there's something more under there. Let me start scratching a little more and, and digging and see whether we can come up with something. You know, sometimes you you don't hit anything, but uh, you know, oftentimes if you're getting those stories on the daily beat, they're bound to lead to at least something more important. Um, as, a, as another example, we spent a lot of time, I, I cover the city of Holyoke, I spend a lot of time uh, listening to or attending city council meetings. And during the, some of those meetings, there's some really heated discussions about the Holyoke Police Department and its use of overtime. And so, of course, we figured, well, why not put some figures in front of uh, our readers and, and, you know, residents of Holyoke and let them kind of decide whether there's a lot of overtime happening here, let them know who's getting it, how much money is being paid out. So we spent a number of months uh, using public records requests to get payroll records, to get internal ledgers that the police department uses to track overtime. And we were able to put out this, this these two big stories uh, focused on just how much money the Holyoke Police Department spends on overtime. Uh, it is a lot. Um, and, you know, how much individual officers were able to earn hourly. Um, you know, all that comes from being on the daily beat. Now, when you say a lot, I'm curious, is that because of other uh, cities comparable throughout Massachusetts? Like, how, how do we determine a lot? Or is it just relative to their size of their budget? You know, it's a good question. Uh, what we focused on specifically, uh, we, we did two stories. We started with payroll records and focused on how much money people are being paid. And uh, we're able to find uh, that, um, you know, city paid overtime had increased from like $587,000 in 2011, all the way up to $1.4 million in 2019. Mm. Uh, you know, the same was true of grant-funded overtime. And we were able to, uh, you know, start to dig into who was receiving some of that overtime. Mm. Uh, you know, after that story, we dug further and we got these internal spreadsheets where they actually tracked the number of hours as well as how much people were getting paid. And we learned that 15 officers in the department were making, were, were paid for more than 500 hours of overtime in one fiscal year. Mm. Uh, some of them included four of the department's uh, five highest paid officers who earned hourly overtime rates of, I wish I earned this kind of money, 94 to $109 an hour. 
Um, so, you know, those are important figures to, to taxpayers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, there were plenty of people that came out after that story and said they deserve every penny. And it's great that we're spending this money on, on public safety. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think our job is, as reporters are to inco- uncover facts like that and uh, let the facts lead where they may. And ultimately, it's up to voters and, and taxpayers in those cities to decide whether that's too much, whether there's something... Uh, you know, a foul there. Both mayoral candidates, uh, this was during a mayoral race, uh, vowed to uh, conduct an audit of the department after our reporting. And sure enough, the current mayor, Joshua Garcia, has moved forward putting out bids for a firm to audit the police department to see if there's something uh, more fishy there. As well he should. But that that sort of springs into my next question, which is, you live in a pretty blue area. This arena is pretty progressive. That's who's reading your newspaper, right? How much does the fact that your uh, readership is of a particular ideological bent affect what you choose to do? It's a good question. And, and let me just add one other thing, especially in this day when fact and belief are sort of merged together in mainstream media too often. Uh, you know, it's a good question. I, I don't think that our readers' sort of ideological preferences uh, necessarily dictate what we're covering as a newspaper. You know, at the end of the day, uh, what decides that is is all of us in a newsroom where there is, you know, substantial ideological diversity within our own newsroom. Um, you know, ultimately, we're picking stories uh, that need to be told about the powerful institutions and people in our area. Um, and so, you know, this is a deep blue area. So that means that when we're digging into politicians, they are often Democrats that we're asking tough questions of. Um, and so, you know, I think, I think, you know, ultimately every reporter, there's no such thing as, as, as anybody who is unbiased. Everybody brings their life experiences, their own thoughts and feelings into a particular story. Journalism 101. Yep. And I think, I think, I think, you know, those kind of things shape, you know, how any individual reporter, what issues they choose to focus their attention on or what they don't choose to focus their attention on. But once you start reporting on a story, it's always important to hold those same ethical standards for every story. And that means reaching out to every single person involved in a story to get their side of it and to fairly and accurately represent their side of it. Anytime we do an investigative story like this, we insist on sitting down with the subjects of the of the reporting and in order to put all of our findings in front of them, let them respond to all of them. If they raise points that we need to go back and, and, and report on, then we need to do that. Um, and, you know, obviously, I, I think what separates us from... Uh, from bloggers or social media posters is if we do get something wrong and occasionally it happens, uh, you know, we're committed to changing an article to running a correction in the newspaper. Uh, I have to say that for, for all of my investigative reporting that has not happened yet. Um, uh, or uh, not on anything substantial anyways. Um, but you know, I think it's important to, to maintain those ethical standards that uh, we all learn as journalists and to apply them to each story, regardless of, of where it leads. Too little of that these days, and I'm just uh, really gratified that in our own local newspaper, that is the orientation. So if people think that they have a story, 
How do they contact you? Oh, great question. Uh, I'll, I'll give out my email on, on the air. Why not? Uh, I'm at dchristensen at gazettenet.com. That's uh, D-C-H-R-I-S-T-E-N-S-E-N. That uh, E-N at the end. Yes, Tango Echo November, Sierra Echo November. <laughs> uh, I'm good at that one. At gazettenet.com. Uh, that's on at the end of every article I've, I've ever written. Uh, my direct desk line is on the Gazette's website. There's a staff directory there. I am super active on Twitter, at DustyC123. Uh, pretty easy to remember. Um, folks should bring tips to us at any point. Do you ever get tips that you really follow up on? All the time. You know, I mean, it, it, inevitably there's some tips that don't lead anywhere and, and then there's really great tips. And, and oftentimes the really good stories that we get come from readers reaching out. You know, I, I should say that uh, with elected officials and powerful people, I don't do off-the-record conversations, really. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm always insisting that I'm writing down what they're saying and I'm, I'm going to publish it if I think it's newsworthy. But when it comes to regular citizens or or maybe somebody in an institution that has an important story, they can always feel free to reach out and have an anonymous off-the-record They could feel safe doing it. Yeah, that means I'm not going to print what they said as an anonymous source. We don't even use anonymous sources in the paper. Uh, you know, that conversation stays between us and between us only. Bring me all of your tips. That's how we get really good stories, folks. Well, I got terrible news for you, Dusty Christensen, we're going to broadcast every word of today's discussion, <laughs> no matter where that lands you. I'm so grateful that you came in to talk to us today, and I hope you won't mind if I call on you again, because you got it. It's now that I got you on a hook, I'm going to keep fishing. I am happy to make the walk down here any day. It's been a pleasure. It's great. It's a pleasure for us. Thank you so much. Thanks. We're going to be back right after this messages. Stay with us. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The town of Amherst is committing to $2 million for its reparations fund over 10 years, modeling it after their cannabis tax revenue. Town Councilor and Chair of the African Heritage Reparations Assembly, Michelle Miller, tells 22 News the next step is to figure out how the funds will be used. When a community comes together, plants that seed, uh, resolves to engage in a path of remedy, and then follows through on that commitment, it's a possibility for creating a more just and equitable society. The reparations fund was created last year to address the harm that slavery and racism has had for black residents. Following the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, the Massachusetts House introduced a bill which would protect people who provide or receive abortions from out-of-state legal action. Several states had trigger laws in place, so when Roe v. Wade was overturned, it made it so abortion became illegal immediately in states like Kentucky, South Dakota, and Oklahoma, even if the person received an abortion in a state where it was legal. A fire in Bernardston shut down parts of South Street early this morning and left the former Four Leaf Clover restaurant damaged. The fire started around 2 a.m. at the Falltown Grill, which was formerly the Four Leaf. There were no reported injuries. The restaurant recently opened under a new name and went under renovations to the building. No information is available on what caused the fire. Temperatures in the low to mid-80s with mostly sunny skies. A shower is possible after 7 p.m. We dry out for your Thursday and Friday with low 90s expected Friday afternoon. Showers and storms on Saturday. Drying out for your Sunday, 4th of July on Monday looking dry with temps in the low to mid-80s. I'm Nick Oresco on 101.5 WHMP. 
When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. Some of the lowest income districts will actually be able to spend per student close to some of the highest districts, as it should be. You should not be underfunded because you happen to have been born in Holyoke or New, New Bedford or Fall River. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. If your Spanish speaking employees spoke better English, would that be good for business? If your English speaking employees spoke a little Spanish, would that be good for business? The International Language Institute delivers workplace language training, improving communication among co workers and with customers. You get financial assistance with the Massachusetts Workplace Training Express Fund. They cover 50 to 100% of the cost. So let's get going. Call or email the International Language Institute in downtown Northampton. Come on over to the co-op, the Greenfield Cooperative Bank. Hi, I'm Jay Sealer, Vice President Commercial Lending at the Greenfield Cooperative Bank and Northampton Co-op Bank Division. Our experienced local commercial lenders are here for you and your business. Hi, I'm Maura Guzik, Vice President and Commercial Loan Officer. Did you know GCB is a SBA preferred lender? And unlike other banks, each of our team members has individual lending authority for fast local decisions. And I'm Adam Baker, Vice President, Commercial Lending. We're here to help your business grow with commercial loans and lines of credit. You can reach any of our experienced commercial loan officers by phone or at bestlocalbank.com. We'd be happy to meet with you at your business or at any of our Franklin and Hampshire County locations. Come on over to the co-op. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender, member FDIC, member DIF. You can count on your friends at the co-op. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg. And welcome back and thanks for joining us this afternoon. So Nan, Mm -hmm. Nan Parati's interesting thing for today is not a thing at all. Not a thing at all, but a really great thing. (laughs) (laughs) So as we all know, because we've been paying attention, I got to run the art department at the Green River Festival. And one of my workers this year who I was just meeting for the first time was a young man named Jay. And we're going to use Jay's first name only today, not his last name. And, um, but the, one of the interesting, there were many interesting things about Jay, but one of the interesting things about Jay was the fact that he used to be a girl and now he's a man and he's grown. He had surgery not too long ago. He was sitting, talking to another one of the workers, my workers. Now I'm grown, I'm old. And generally a conversation with a trans person frequently gets me in trouble. Not because I'm a jerk. I just am asking questions I think are interesting, good questions, but you know, you're old, you're not paying attention. You said that you didn't say they, whatever. And it's, and it gets scary to me. And in talking to Jay, listening to Jay talk to other people. And then in my own conversations, Jay was so nice, very nice to me, very articulate and very sweet. And I thought, Jay, let's take this conversation public. Cause I think there are a lot of people out there who are afraid to ask questions because they just don't know. They don't want to get in trouble and they don't want to say the wrong thing. And so Jay agreed to come in and talk to me, and we're going to carry on. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, of course. I'm <laughs> really happy to be here. This is my first time doing anything like this. It's awesome. I really I liked the way um, that you phrased used to be a girl and is now a man because uh, one of the things about me is that I came out as trans when I was 13. So I really did. I went from being a little girl to being a young man. I was never a woman, and I was never a little boy. And that's I think that's a very, like— a lot of people, you know, their experience is very different depending on what age right. they come out at. So, right. Yeah, and yeah. that's one of the things I wanted to talk about was exactly your 
your literal journey, your experience. <laughs> How did you know at 13? What, what, tell me about this, because this is something that people kind of don't talk about yeah. in this other world outside of yours. So I was, I'm 19 now, um, and when I was 13, I, I started, I had started the year before at an all-girls middle school. Uh-huh. And I was there. And I was, the first year, I was like, this is, this is great. This is fun. The second year, I was like, something's different here. <laughs> Turned out the thing that was different was me. <laughs> um, just, uh, I'd been homeschooled previously, actually. So that was my first time going to school with other people. And all of a sudden, being in that environment um, and realizing that everyone seemed to be a certain way that I was not, and then kind of like analyzing why that was, I made the realization that you know, being being surrounded by all these really cool and awesome girls, I was like, well, I might be cool and I might be awesome, but I am not a girl. That's so <laughs> interesting. What was it that, what, I mean, if you can go back and, you know, that was a long time ago, but can you go back and say, what were the things that, that tipped you off there? Well, the thing well, is... Can I be more specific? Yeah, what were those yeah. things that you weren't? Yeah. Well, okay. The, 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 it started out um, very much being more of a physical than a social thing. Uh, because I was not in an environment with any guys. There were no guys around. I mean, the only guys were like teachers and they were old. So it was like, you know, I, it was just young women. Um, and I, you know, I'd started puberty and there were some other uh, trans people at that school um, who were older. And, you know, I, I was like having conversations with them because we were in a lot of the same activities. If anybody knows anything about theater departments, you will get that. <laughs> uh, we congregate. I don't know what it is. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd been talking to them and, 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 you know, talking about some of the things that I was experiencing. And then at one point I just realized I don't think that people who are girls hate the things about their body that I hate about my body. Because plenty of girls, you know, feel, feel like bad about their bodies. Plenty of girls have, have issues with with self-esteem and with, with their bodies because, you know, obviously the society that we live in makes that happen a lot. But they don't want flat chests necessarily. Mm-hmm. That's, that's not a thing that a lot of girls are going to go around wanting. And then, and then I got a little deeper into it. I was like, I started thinking about the kind of person that I envisioned myself being as an adult. And I was like, I don't see myself as a woman, as a grown woman. I see myself as a grown man. That's maybe something I need to think about a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it all really went from there. Uh, I started out um, identifying as non-binary and using they, them pronouns. Made a really hard switch um, in my ninth grade year when I was still at the all-girls school. And I was like, nope, I'm going to be a guy. I'm going to be the only boy at this school. And I was like, yes, I am the manliest person at this school because I am the only man at this school. <laughs> um, uh, and then I switched to a, uh, a co-ed and all-gender school um, for the rest of high school. And all of a sudden, it was very different. And I was like, if I am not the most masculine person ever at all times, I'm going to die on the spot. <laughs> um, so I spent a few years doing that. Um, and then I think, honestly, I think the pandemic might have had something to do with it. But in my in my senior year of high school, I was like, maybe I don't have to, you know, I don't have to put myself in another box. And I can just kind of like be genuine to myself without trying to please other people. Mm-hmm. Um 
so I, I started like dressing and presenting a little bit more androgynously. I mean, I, no one can see me in the studio right now, but if you were to see me, you would not think that I look like your, your average everyday guy. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and I, I, I kind of started on that journey um, in my senior year of high school, and it's, it's been a year since then, and I've only become more comfortable with who I am mm -hmm. uh, since leaving high school. Nana, that, that was so articulate. Jane, I'll, I'll tell you what I took from that, which is she... At the time she was just she, mm -hmm. then um, was questioning identity. You knew that you were in that identity was the wrong identity for you, yeah. but you didn't know what the right one was. Exactly. And you're still trying to figure out what the right identity is. Well, that's actually, that's really interesting that you say that because I do think right now that I have figured out what that identity is, but that might not be the case in, you know, in a few more years. Like in a few more years, I might, I might decide to lean more into the masculinity that I was I was trying so hard to to present in in um, the beginning of high school convention you convention. might lean into convention you know I'm I'm not you know ignorant of the fact that people go through you know teenage rebellion phases and I, I'm I'm aware that you know my current androgyny might might be just me like pushing pushing the envelope seeing like where that gets me and but right now it is what makes me happy so I'm like. Yes, I figured myself out for now. Maybe, you know, maybe I'll cut my hair short again and, you know, start wearing three-piece suits or whatever in a couple <laughs> years. But we'll see about that. And I'm, I'm sorry to be interrupting. No, but, you're fine. But I, I, I guess that leads me to two questions. Number one is, were your parents and your family supportive? And number two, without identifying anybody. Yeah. And number two, um, what do you think it's like for, to be in transition with a family that's not supportive? Well, I have been an extremely privileged person in the sense that my family has been supportive of everything from the very beginning. I mean, like, I, I remember I came out to my dad as trans in the car on the way back from Cape Cod the summer between my seventh and eighth grade. I was, I just turned 13 and I was like, Dad, I don't think I'm a girl. Uh, can I, can, can I, can I swear on here? No, no okay. you can't. No really. swearing. All right. Um, <laughs> And, and what he said, the first thing he said, well, this is not the words he said, but he said, does that mean you want different parts? <laughs> and I said, well, Dad, I hadn't really thought about that one. <laughs> I'm 13. <laughs> and he said, well, all right then. What do you want me to call you? And we kind of went from there. Um, yeah, my parents have been, have been absolutely wonderful the entire time. They, um, they paid the $150 fee for my name change. Um, they weren't going to pay for my surgery, which is completely understandable because that's very expensive. But I was also very fortunate that my insurance covered my surgery. Mm. Um, so I've just, I feel like I've had a very smooth sailing kind of, kind of journey. Um, I feel very, very lucky because of that. I really, you know, I can't, speak with any sort of first-person experience on what it's like to grow up in an unsupportive environment, but I do know that a lot of the people who have grown up in unsupportive environments aren't here anymore to speak about that. So I mm. think that's, that, that, that says what needs to be said about mm. kids who grow up uh, in, in environments where they either come out and are rejected or can't even come out for fear of their safety. A lot it's of them don't When we're talking about people who are children age. and adolescents, it's... it's right. yeah. That's un unthinkable. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, I'm 19. I'm very young. And a lot of people don't make it to 19. Right. Um, okay. Um, one, one question I have, and, I've, and uh, like, again, I do feel comfortable asking you. And so I'm now speaking for all the older people who have never been <laughs> able right. to ask a question. Right. <laughs> so it's, it's interesting how many kids now we see transgender kids all the time. Yeah. And when we were growing up, never in life, not once. 
And what do you think? What it was? The, what is the shift? No, that, I, hold it. Okay. I remember reading when I was like eleven about Christine. Oh, yep, right. There yep, was Christine. Yep. I forgot about Christine. So once in life. <laughs> yeah, One person. Yeah. <laughs> right. Once in life. Well, I think a lot of it uh, is, is shifting social climates. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of it, I mean, I don't, I'm not going to say that I'm the most, you know, educated on, on my, the history of even my own community. That's, you know, probably something I should work on. But um, a lot of it did, you know, the 70s, the 80s, things were starting to kind of kick up in terms of like people's awareness of of being gay. Mm-hmm. And from there, things started, you know, emerging that, you know, people were putting words to things that had been experienced for a really long time and no one knew about it. Like there would be, um, you know, if, if somebody was trans in like the 1800s, they'd be sent away to boarding school and then somebody's, you know, distant niece would come and live in that kid's room. And it's like, they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't be this, treated as the same person, right. but they would be the same person. And, and that's how it happened a lot of the time. People mm-hmm. would, like, hide it, but they wouldn't prevent it in a lot of cases. Right. So I, I, think, it is, I think it is an openness um, that has very recently only been, only been developing, mm-hmm. and people have the words to, to describe what we they're feeling. Are, uh, we're blessed to have you here, Jay, and we're Thank grateful you. that Nan brought you here. Grateful to be here. <laughs> Yeah, it's an important conversation, and we should have more of these conversations. Agreed. And we're going to right after we take this break. (laughs) We'll be back with Jay and with Nan right after these messages. Stay with us. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday Jackalope? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. Enjoy fine dining in downtown Springfield. Black Angus Filet Mignon, Crab Cake Stuffed Jumbo Shrimp, Bolognese, Bear Island Salmon, and vegans are welcome too. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. A reason to celebrate this 4th of July, the naturalization ceremony on the Northampton Courthouse lawn. Join us when we speak with Lori Millman, executive director of the Center for New Americans and a CNA student who on July 4th will become a citizen. Please be with us Thursday at 9 o'clock. Get in on the conversation. Bill Newman. Weekdays at 9 and again at 5. WHMP News, Information and the Arts. When I was a kid, a bowl of cereal seemed incomplete unless it was topped with sliced bananas. And we knew where our bananas came from. They came from Chiquita. Our pineapples came from Dole. And our oranges came from Sunkist. We didn't think much about it, but we do now. We want food that hasn't spent a lot of time on a truck or in a processing plant. Around here, it's hard to miss the Local Hero label. Local Hero makes it quick and easy to identify food raised right here in Western Mass. Local Hero is part of CESA, Community Involved in Sustaining Agriculture. And Local Hero is just one of the things that CESA does to help Western Mass farms thrive. CESA helps build a strong local food system, working with farmers, stores, restaurants, so all of us have fresh 
fresh local food choices. Look for the bright yellow Local Hero label and think about becoming a CESA supporter. Go to buylocalfood.org, find out what CESA does and why it's worth supporting, and bon appetit. Want to know more about local history, literature, and education? Hilltown Families bi-monthly Learning Ahead Cultural Itineraries offer an easy way to delve into Western Mass culture and traditions. These new seasonal itineraries are produced in collaboration with a humanities scholar and community education expert, offering ways for self-directed teens and lifelong learners to engage in learning that helps shape a sense of place. Funded by a year-long grant from Mass Humanities, you can download guides anytime, free of charge, at Hilltown Families. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHM. And we are back with an interesting thing, uh-huh. Nan Parati. Thank you. And Jay. And Jay. Hello. Yes, <laughs> I am interesting. <laughs> you are very, very interesting. I really appreciate this. Thank you. You know, I know that you had surgery not too long ago because I remember talking yes. to your mama about it when you yes. were undergoing it. Was that scary? Was it, what was it like to say, okay, I'm making, I'm doing this now? Um, I'd, I'd never had a surgery before. I had no idea what to expect. Uh, for, for context, I got a uh, double mastectomy. It's referred to as top surgery. Mm-hmm. I have a flat chest now. It's mm-hmm. great. It's wonderful. Um, I was, I was scared, but I wasn't scared that I would regret it because this was something that I, I had been wanting since I was 13 years old. Like I had known, I'd been like, you know, thinking about saving money for this since I was 13 years old. Yeah, you were telling me that yeah. every every Christmas, every birthday, every you always asked for money that you could save. And you had saved how much? Uh, I saved... Um I, I don't even I don't even know the I'm, full amount. But yeah, it was, it was somewhere like thirteen thirteen k. Exactly. So a kid starting at age thirteen is I mean that's one thing that really kind of amazed me the dedication. Here's what I'm doing. I'm saving every penny I've got, and you know most well, kids. Can't I mean, do. I got myself presents. What? <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's impressive. I I was I was thinking about saving for the surgery since I was thirteen years mm-hmm. old. Um, so I was not scared that I would wake up and be like I've made a horrible mistake. Uh, I was just, I was scared of, <laughs> I was scared of waking up during the surgery when, like, coming out of anesthesia, you know, I was scared of, like, the pain because I didn't know how much it would hurt because I'd never had a surgery before. I was scared of the normal surgery things, like the things that everyone's scared of right. about a surgery, but I knew that when I woke up, there would be a weight off my chest in more than one way. Um, <laughs> That's good. And I was absolutely right. I mean, it's been several months now mm-hmm. um, since my surgery. I have not had one moment of regret, and mm-hmm. I have been just absolutely thrilled with being able to like wear clothes that I wouldn't have worn before, um, you know, do things that I was like, didn't like doing, like going swimming. Um, it's just been absolutely a freeing experience. I made a checklist before my surgery of all the things that I wanted to do mm-hmm. um, after I got it. And, and down at the bottom, I said, be free. And I've checked almost everything on that list. There are some things that I haven't just because I haven't like gotten around to doing them yet. But it's it's just, and I have checked be free on my list because I am I feel like I'm now free to do so much more that I wouldn't have have felt comfortable or happy letting myself do before. Yeah, Jay, there's so much about all the discussion, and and as Nan said, Nan, you put it very well in terms of those of us who have to acclimate to this because it's not how we were growing up. Yeah, right. Um, but now with all the discussion about gender fluidity and yes. non-binary stuff and Title IX and yes. uh, ceilings hopefully breaking, yes. glass ceilings, um, what's the future of gender? Uh, I really wish I knew. Um, 
And I think that that that's that's it's a, it's a hard question because everybody like experiences it so differently in this community. Like there's there are people that I've talked to that I'm like, hey, we've experienced similar stuff. There's people that I've talked to and it's like your journey is absolutely completely 100% different from mine. Um, I would I would like to think that that in the future. Um, people will be less confined by the boxes of male and female. I'd, I'd really love to believe that because I've spent a lot of my life, you know, I spent a year at, at my middle school trying to be a girl and then I spent, you know, years at, at my high school trying to be a normal boy and neither of them worked and I was miserable both ways. Um, and and being, you know, having graduated now, I, I've found myself free to be neither when I want to, you know, I, I use he and they pronouns interchangeably. I know that that messes a lot of people up. I don't really care. Most people call me he. I'm fine with that. But I don't, you know, I don't have to put myself in a box, which which I hope that other people can 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 do, you know, in the future. I really hope people can be themselves without having to force themselves into something that's not genuine. Because that or really measure does, their yeah. their value by standards that aren't necessarily absolutely absolutely yeah yeah. Um, have you had any negativity? I know. I mean, have, yeah. Have you had any negativity from people? Well, uh, one of the reasons that I left my um, my middle school was that uh, one of the the people who worked at the at the school, one of the people in the administration, she told me that I could not use the men's bathroom at that school because male teachers said it made them uncomfortable, and I said. I'm a 14-year-old child. If I'm making them uncomfortable, that's their problem, not my problem. <laughs> I, I didn't say that because I didn't want to get kicked out of school. <laughs> but uh, so but that was what smart. I thought. <laughs> uh, yes, I, I like to think so. <laughs> um, but yeah, I've, that, that's, you know, I, I, at that school was the most negativity I experienced. And I think it was because it was not an environment for me. You know, right. it was an all-girls school. I was not a girl. This environment was not made for me. Mm -hmm. uh, and they... They were, you know, they want. They didn't want me to leave the school. They wanted me to stay. I don't know why they wanted me to stay, but they wanted me to stay. And I said, "This isn't going to work. I need to. I need to be somewhere where I'm not the only guy, where I'm not the only, you know, mm -hmm. trans guy, and where people aren't going to tell me that I can't go pee <laughs> in the bathroom <laughs> that I would like to go pee in." But that's <laughs> it's a very the, simple thing. <laughs> I apologize. What? I'm being. I'm being so male. I'm stealing your <laughs> interviewee <laughs> here. Yeah. But. Go ahead. Just I can't help it. Um, fine. Because I'm fascinated. What do you think motivates those legislators in those states that have passed bathroom laws and that are uh, so hell-bent on um, stopping people from being gender fluid or in transition or et cetera? I got to say it's probably a combination of willful ignorance and fear. I think a lot of people are, are afraid of things that go against the status quo, that go against how they understand life and how they understand society. And I think that they aren't willing to accept that some people are just different from them. Uh, and I think that that's not a new thing. And I think that that applies to way more than just trans kids. Um, I, yeah, I think it's a lot of fear. I think it's a lot of misinformation. I mean, people are out there saying people are, you know, kids are getting gender reassignment surgeries when they're seven years old. No one's doing that. Literally no one's doing that. No doctor would do that. That's not something that happens. The most that happens when somebody who is a very young person comes out, usually they get a haircut. They change their name. 
If they're like, you know, 11 or 12, maybe they go on hormone blockers so that they don't fully go through puberty. But if they go off the blockers later because they've, you know, realized that they actually are okay with going through puberty, they'll go through puberty normally. It just like puts it off until they've figured out, you know, what they want to do. That's the, that is the only medical thing that anybody's going to be doing to a kid. And I feel like a lot of people don't know that because the media really makes a big deal out of, out of, um, out of, you know, kids getting... Your guest is so getting. articulate. I know. This is why Jay <laughs> We only here. have one minute to go. Jay, I told you I was yes. going to ask you this. If you could rule the world, what would the world look like for you? God. Well, I... If I could, if I could rule the world, a lot of things would would be different that uh, that I'm not going to get into because I don't have time. But I, what I would want people to understand, what I'd go on, you know, you know, international broadcasts and say about about trans people, is that trying to put trans people in one category is not going to work because every trans person is different. Everyone who is trans experiences it differently, and there's no one one journey, one experience. There's no one way. To define all trans people and that's something that like it's really important to understand because if if people say oh well just because you know this trans person that i know you know said this one thing it must apply to all trans people that's that's super not true and that's like a really unfortunate thing that lots of people try to do is say that you know the trans experience there's just one trans experience that's not true there is as many trans experiences as there are trans people trans or not nan we need more young men like jay i Absolutely agree. That's why, Jay, will you come back and work for us at Green River Festival again next year? Absolutely, oh, I will. Yay. I was going to ask you that, you know, as, as soon as we got <laughs> off air, but I'm glad that you asked me. <laughs> you all heard it here. Jay's coming back next year. I am. I'm coming back. <laughs> and my guess is Nan's still going to be a woman, but who knows? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think, Nan? <laughs> probably. <laughs> probably. All right. Probably works. Jay, thank you so much for joining us. Thank Nan, you. Nan, that was indeed an interesting I thing. I told you. You're right. Mm -hmm. And we would like to have you back again, Jay. Thank you. I'd be absolutely willing to come back and talk more. And I'd be honored <laughs> if you did. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Be with us tomorrow. The Afternoon Buzz. This is The Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg. 101.5 WHMP. My name is Joanne Vaneen. I am a CASA worker, court-appointed special advocate for the organization Friends of Children. I first got involved with the CASA program back in 2004. I was still full-time employed at that time as the uh, dean of students at UMass Amherst. The case that inspires me relates to a young man. There were issues of physical abuse. There were issues of drug abuse. Through the advocacy work that I did, this young man was placed with a family in Springfield. It was a rocky start. But the good news is that this the only live and local talk in the valley and for the valley. WHMP Northampton, WHMQ Greenfield, a Northampton radio group station. It's five o'clock.